Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve Podcast, where the sexaholic or sex addict can find experience, strength, and hope from those that have traveled this road ahead of us. This episode is produced in the spirit of the 12th step to carry the message to other sexaholics. Every effort has been made to remove full names of the speakers in these recordings. This is done in order to follow the 11th tradition regarding anonymity at the level of press, radio, television, and film. This podcast is self-supporting through contributions. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and would like to support The Daily Reprieve, please do so by going to GoFundMe.com, search for The Daily Reprieve, and click on Donate Now. Without further ado, please enjoy today's Daily Reprieve. Welcome, everybody. I'm Dave. I'm a recovering sexaholic. And uh, I've been sexually sober since uh, August 1st, 1985. And, uh, yeah, it doesn't seem possible. It really doesn't. Uh, As my my sponsor says, who's been sober for 31 years, uh, all you have to do is stay sober one day at a time and live for 30 years. And that's, that's pretty much... How it's, it's so easy. That, that's how easy. that's how it's worked for me. Um, I wish I could tell you I had you know I found the magic bullet and uh, uh, if you just took this pill you know that's it would work that way for you but that's the way it worked for me. Um, just a little bit of my background. I first viewed pornography when I was uh, eight, going on nine. I was exposed by a, a neighbor kid who was uh, four years older than me and who had already gone through puberty. And uh, he showed me some pictures in his dad's dresser drawer, uh, pictures that I still remember. And that was um, 54 years ago. Um, And uh, later he talked me into, uh, we took off our clothes, um, he never touched me, but uh, you know today he you know he would he would have gone to jail or or had some kind of you know what what happened was sexual abuse. Um, but for me it was really exciting. It was something I immediately knew I wasn't going to tell my parents, um, and it was uh, something that I wanted to go back to as often as I could, and I. I didn't know why. Um, I just know that's 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 the way I wanted it, and uh, and you know, upon years and years of looking back at it now, I know it was because you know my home life was you know extremely chaotic. My dad was a uh, um, manic depressive, uh, multiply addicted, although. None of that was none of the addiction stuff was done in front of us, but you know, um, I've we I discovered it as my addiction um, progressed, but uh, but primarily for me it was all the tension in that house because my dad's moods were up and down, and we we were taught to believe that our behavior uh, either caused his his behavior so we became you know we were taught that um, it was and it wasn't spoken but it was you know we just learned that you know if we kept quiet maybe dad wouldn't be angry 
And if we didn't do things, if we did things right, then maybe dad would be happy. And then he wouldn't be mad. And then he wouldn't not speak to us or he would, um, through the course of a weekend, or spend the entire weekend in bed in his bedroom, only coming up to, you know, have a meal and not speak to us. And, you know, we avoided him. And so, you know, I lived uh, in a world where I was on eggshells all the time. You know, I was always at a really heightened sense of awareness. You know, uh, uh, we used to call it um, hypervigilant because I, you know, I didn't know what I was getting when I walked through the door. So when I walked through that door every day, you know, it was like, what am I going to get? You know, is it going to be up or down? That kind of stuff. And pornography, um, and then, you know, I, I'm not sure when I learned to masturbate, but it was probably within the next year. Um, you know, once I learned I could do that, that helped me with all that anxiety and fear um, that, you know, I grew up with. So, you know, that's, that's what I did. Uh, and then when the neighbor kids started looking at pornography, then we had a stash, you know, we had a fort, we had it out in the woods. And, you know, while they were home having dinner, I was up in, an, up in the fort looking at it by myself, masturbating to it. Um, that became a pattern. And, uh, you know, I remember lusting after, um, you know, uh, teenage girls in the neighborhood. I remember uh, conspiring with the other boys in the neighborhood to try to peep through windows, um, that kind of stuff. So, you know, that was the circle I, you know, ran in, and, it, you know, it worked. You know, it, I, I stayed alive. Um, uh, the uh, stress of living with my parents and, and, and with my dad and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, was manageable. And uh, so that's how I coped with everything. And I, you know, I, I just grew up thinking that, you know, being, uh, being physically with a woman has got to be the ultimate. And, uh, and always, you know, the women that were attracted to, that I was attracted to were the type that I saw in those pictures. So, you know, the Playboy types, those, those, those were my fantasies. And, uh, you know, I developed really late, you know, physically. You know, I didn't go through uh, puberty until I was 17, um, so, you know, I was very shy around women, so, you know, had a few interactions with women in high school, but, you know, I finally got my height my first year of college, and, and by then, you know, it was, you know, I went to college, and my first year of college was 1970, so uh, this was the, you know, we'd just gone through the, the summer of love and all that kind of stuff, Everybody in the 70s, all the guys I was running around with, they were trying to score, you know, and that's, that's what I thought I wanted to do, too. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't have intercourse until I was 21, but, man, when I did, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. I said, this is it. You know, what I, what I realize now, looking back at it, is that, you know, and I would, I would tell you up until, probably up until, I've been in the program 30 years, I've been married for... 20, going on 20. So probably the first 10 years of my, maybe the first 10 to 12 years of my recovery, I would have told you that um, sex with a woman was my drug of choice. Um, it wasn't until I experienced healthy sexuality with my spouse that I realized that that was just another form of masturbation for me. You know, being with another woman uh, was, you know, I was in my head. I wasn't 
with the person. You know, when I, when I uh, uh, remarried after 11 years of sobriety, um, uh, I discovered what healthy sexuality was. And it was, it was a mutual thing. It was me being present and not in fantasy. Um, so that's when I learned that, you know, what I had been doing with those other women was really masturbation for me, and even though it seemed better than masturbation. Yeah, because masturbation to me, you know, always, I, you know, had shame about that. You know, it's something I was doing by myself. And uh, so, you know, quick just uh, history. So, I, you know, I, I was married to the woman who I thought was of my dream. She had the perfect body. Um, she was smart, and, and that was important for me, too. Um, you know, I thought I threw away my stash when I got married. I didn't think I needed it anymore. Got rid of all the porno. You know, I was subscribing to Penthouse at the time. Stopped my subscription. Threw it all away, all the back issues. I, I had years and years of issues. Favorite issue, you know, favorite had my stash, got rid of everything. I wasn't going to need it anymore because, you know, we were going to have sex every time I wanted to and, and life was going to be good. And, and, you know, a couple months into marriage, well, she wasn't in the mood or it was her period or whatever. And, you know, so I, you know, got back into masturbation. And, I, you know, I didn't really feel guilty about it, but it wasn't something, I, you know, I told her about. You know, I just, you know, I just did it. That's the way I always did it by myself. And then, uh, um, so that happened, and, and uh, you know, I got married in 1980. I was, I was 28. She was 24. Uh, I had a great job, you know, working for a, a really good company. I was in upstate New York. I, I moved from Ohio to upstate New York. And uh, um, one of my buddies had a spiritual awakening. So he had this religious experience, and he... And he shared that with me. Now, this was a guy who in college was cheating on his wife. And I knew his wife. He also had a porno stash. You know, go figure. A friend of mine might have some of the, do some of the same stuff I did. And uh, so he has this big spiritual awakening. And it, he was different. It, it, you know, he changed. And it was, it was noticeable to me. And um, that got my attention. And, you know, I, you know, by then, you know, I was married. Um, you know, we both had good jobs with, you know, top com- companies. Uh, you know, we were living in the yuppie lifestyle, you know, dual income, no kids, all the money we wanted, new cars, nice place to live. And I realized something was missing in my life. And uh, um, so I started going back to church. And... Uh, after a while, I'm, I'm back at church, and then all of a sudden, you know, my realizing that I'm, you know, sexualizing every woman that I see, that I've got this fantasy uh, lineup of women that I'd love to have sex with, you know, this one first, this one second, that kind of stuff. And so then my thought life isn't consistent with my, you know, newly found, fi- you know, I'm finding the spiritual life, and then I'm starting to feel guilty about it. And uh, so then I try to control it, and then I realize, man, I can't control this stuff. You know, I, I, I do it all the time. And so I became aware of how frequently I was doing it. Um, somewhere along the line, I, I, I got this sense 
that no matter what I did, whatever fantasy I conjured up, or whatever experience I, you know, you know, I, I wasn't going to cheat on my wife yet. Um, that no matter what I did, I couldn't make it any better. And so it, it, then I realized, you know, it really didn't satisfy. <laughs> so now I'm doing something I really don't want to do. It really doesn't work, and you know, I don't know how to stop. Um, and it wasn't until 1984, um, I was changing jobs. I turned on the TV one day to get, you know, ostensibly to get a, a lust hit. Phil Donahue was on the TV. There was a guy sitting behind a glass screen uh, describing his behavior, which was uh, he had a stash of pornography. He kept it hidden from his wife, and he masturbated to it. And the topic that day was sexual addiction. And I said... Holy crap. I, I knew immediately that was me. Um, the title of the book back then was called Sexual Addiction. It's called Out of the Shadows Now. Um, but the, there was this therapist talking about sexual addiction, and I identified immediately. I knew that was me. And, uh, um, but what he didn't offer other than the book was, how do you stop? Um, you know, he ended up starting another S fellowship, and but I didn't even it, that wasn't discussed. At least I didn't hear it that day. And so, you know, I immediately knew that's what I was. But I sure as heck didn't tell my spouse. It's like, what would she do? She might leave me. Uh, I was I was changing jobs, going to another company. So you know, going through a couple of life's great, most stressful moments. I've I left a company that sent me to college. I'd worked for her for 15 years. And so I'm going through that transition. Um, you know, we, we end up buying this big, our yuppie dream house. So I'm, I'm physically moving. So that big, you know, one of life's five top stressors, you know. And uh, I find out I'm an addict. Well, I'm not going to tell her about it. So I didn't. Uh, but in the meantime, I'm thinking, you know, what the heck do I do? So I kept going to church. Um, Several months after I changed jobs, probably in the fall of that year, she comes to me and says, I'm not happy. And that's, that really got my attention. So we started counseling immediately. You know, I, why aren't you happy? I mean, you know, we've got all this stuff. I mean, uh, you know, we had what everybody wanted. We had this beautiful house in the suburbs. We both had great jobs. You know, we had nice clothes. We took beautiful vacations. Yeah, I mean, you know, what's, you know, what's wrong? I had no sense that my addiction had anything to do with our relationship. Not a, not a clue. And so I didn't even bring it up with the therapist, you know. And he got us to, to do some behavioral modification stuff, spending more time. You know, I was compulsively working while she was compulsively spending. And uh, so I felt trapped in that. You know, the more I worked, the more she spent, and the more she complained about me working. But I felt like I had to to keep her happy. And so I was stuck. Didn't, you know. Anyway, she finally, she finally moves out. And, uh, you know, my, I was starting to have difficulty on, on the new job. I was uh, into this new job. Five months into my new job on my third boss, the guy that hired me was totally in a different part of the company by then. The guy that I'm now working for doesn't like me, and he starts really putting heat on me. And uh, so my job is coming, you know, is, is coming unraveled. My, my wife moves out on me, and uh, 
wasn't eating, wasn't sleeping. So I, I started getting some crisis can- counseling. Ended up taking about six weeks off work uh, to kind of get straightened around. And at the end of that time, as a, you know, I was finally starting to eat, recognizing we were probably going to get a divorce. Um, I finally said to this counselor, I said, you know, I don't think this has, this has anything to do with my relationship problem, but I've got a problem with sex. And I said, can you help me? And this is probably our second to last session. And he reaches into his drawer, looks at something, writes SA, PO Box 300, Simi Valley, California, and slides across the table to me. He said, these people might be able to help you. I had no idea what SA stood for. You know, it was in California. I was in Rochester, New York. I sent off to him. I said, I think I have a problem with sexual addiction. You know, about a week later, I get a pamphlet back. It was you know, from our founder. You know, he was running it out of his garage at that time in California. And uh, it had the pamphlet with the 20 questions on it, the problem, the solution, and the 20 questions. And I, you know, I read the problem, and I cried. I said, you know, that, that is me. You know, I bought it, I sold it, I traded it, I gave it away. That was me. And, uh, and that God was part of the solution. You know, I was fortunate in that by that time I, I'd really recognized that I needed God. Um, and uh, so th- that God was part of the solution gave me a lot of hope. I wasn't sure how it was going to work, but it did give me hope. And I know, you know, a lot of people really got burned in church, and, you know, I, I feel for them. Uh, you know, we went to church. You know, I never saw my parents relying on anything that they learned there, and I really thought it was a denominations problem and not... Um, so I switched denominations, naturally, and, uh, and, I, and I found what I needed there. You know, it, it helped me. So, uh, so here I am... Um, now what do I do? Okay, I hear about meetings, and you know, uh, it took me another couple of months to go to my first meeting. And uh, you know, the guy that ran that first meeting, um, uh, I went in August seventh, nineteen eighty-five, in a mental institution in Rochester, New York. And there are all these people standing outside wearing these white gowns, smoking cigarettes. I remember that vividly. And you know, what a perfect place to have an SA meeting. And uh, this mental institution. He had to run the gauntlet to get in the front door. And, uh, you know, the guy that opened the meeting's name was Vince, and uh, he'd been sober for five months. And I about fell off my chair. I said, you got to be kidding me. Five months? Five months? And, you know, he told part of his story, and, and the other guys told their stories, and I heard about stuff I'd never heard of. You know, these guys, some of these guys were doing some things I'd never even heard of. And, uh, but, you know, there was this common, you know, three other men. Um, There's this common bond. You know, we were all wanting to stop doing something that we were doing. And uh, never saw Vince again. Vince went back out. And I was, uh, you know, I was to learn later that uh, he ended up dying from his addiction. He was, he was flying down to New York City to go to the bathhouses. And that's just as this disease called AIDS was being discovered. And he got AIDS and, and died. And he never came back. But he got me to my first meeting. Um, so, 
started in Rochester, New York, um, almost immediately the desire to masturbate was just lifted. I, and that's the only way I can describe it. Um, I wish I could tell you it was something I did. It just, it, that's just the way it happened for me. Um, I think part of it was just recognizing um, that you know, the first tool I learned was the prayer. Um, you know, I, I um, read in the, in the white book, it was brown back then. <laughs> it, kind of, it was uh, eight and a half by 11. In fact, I saw somebody that had one. I, I've still got my original book that I got in 1985. Uh, it wasn't white then, and it was, it was you know, basically he Xeroxed it and, and bound it. That's what the first uh, uh, book looked like. But, uh, you know, if I prayed, every time I felt the urge, and oh my gosh, did I feel, you know, I felt the urge a lot. But if I prayed, I, you know, it, it would leave me. Um, so, you know, you know, talking about the topic today, bring it to the light, um, that was the first way I, I started connecting. You know, when I recognized I had this urge to lust, um, when I, as soon as I recognized it and I asked God to take it away, um, God would. And that was, that was eye-opening. You know, you, you think about, I talked about it in an early session this morning, just how much technology has changed since I came in the program. You know, um, you know all we had were landlines, okay? So we didn't have cell phones, and... And most people aren't going to talk, you know, make a program call from their desk at work or from, you know, that's pretty hard to do. And so most of your, our phone calls were at night. And, uh, you know, some of the guys that, were, uh, that I started with in Rochester were married at the time, but they didn't, they didn't um, tell their spouses right away. So they're having to sneak out to pay phones or bowling alleys or whatever, to, and I was the only single guy, so I was getting a lot of phone calls. So, you know, God was doing for me what I couldn't do for myself, you know, casting it out over the telephone. Um, so, you know, I got a lot of phone calls. Uh, you know, God was doing for me what I could not do for myself. Um, the phone was really heavy for me. You know, it weighs like 50 pounds. You know, you just get it out of the... And uh, but people were calling me, and... Uh, uh, I went to my first conference in uh, October 1985, and we were in Rochester. We drove over to Cleveland and uh, um, listened to my first uh, tape, recovery tape. Um, and I think SA had one of their first conferences, conventions or whatever, back in 83 or 84. And um, there was a guy on a tape called Jess, named Jess L., uh, he ended up turning out to be my sponsor's sponsor, so he's my grand sponsor. And uh, he's pretty famous. He was an author, had written some very famous books. So he's a really gifted speaker. And, uh, um, you know, he talked about the concept of lust. And that, you know, when he came to SA, you know, it was lust. It was, you know, that unnatural... Uh, desire for some basic uh, need, um, that unnatural desire for that to fulfill all your needs. And uh, uh, that got my attention. So I, I, I you know, I, I learned, you know, if I, if I listened to this stuff, listened to the recovery stuff, you know, that that would help me. Um, after a couple of months, I lost my job in Rochester. 
Um, ended up getting the job of my dreams. Um, but it took me to Detroit. You know, I was still married. I was still trying to pull my, you know, keep, you know, try to salvage this marriage. But I lost my job. I got another really good job in Detroit. Go to Detroit, no essay meetings. You know, and in Detroit at the time, in the mid-'80s, you know, it was a couple million people. It's not that many now, but it was then. And uh, so now I got to, I got to, you know, I, I attended the other S fellowship for almost a year, and I realized that I, 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 needed, I needed SA. You know, they were pretty much defining sobriety, just about everybody kind of defined it for themselves. And there wasn't a lot of recovery there. And I was still sober. Um, uh, it was a year, and I was still sober. And uh, still hadn't, you know, I had done a first step, but I still didn't have a sponsor because everywhere I went, you know, I, I was the guy that had the most sobriety. And uh, um, I thought, you know, I, I needed to find somebody with more sobriety. That, that really isn't the case. You know, you just need to get somebody that's working the steps, that's ahead of you in the steps. But I didn't know that at the time. And so I kept working one, two, and three. You know, I'm powerless. I believe that God can restore me to sanity. And um, I tried to surrender, you know, when, when the, the temptation to lust uh, came up. So I go to Detroit for a couple of years, started, started some meetings there. I went to my first national conference in 86 in St. Louis, and that's where I met Harvey. Um, he was, you know, wouldn't become my sponsor for another three years, but I knew I was coming to Nashville, and he was from Nashville. And so I made that connection. And when I moved here in 19... 19- 88, there were two SA meetings in Asheville. You know, one on Thursday night and one on Saturday afternoon. And uh, I lived here in Franklin, so you know, I was driving to, from, from Franklin to, uh, to Nashville on Thursday nights and on Saturdays to go to meetings. And uh, you know, we didn't start our first meeting here in Franklin until I think 89, and it was uh, where the old Christ community used to be in downtown Franklin, um, but it was it was uh, you know coming to Nashville. Uh, you know every every town has kind of a like a different flavor, and I guess it's, it depends on who starts the meeting, what their influence was. Um, but one of the things that I noticed about Harvey in particular is. Um, and, and I heard it for the first time in another conference I'd been to in Chicago is you know something called leading with your weaknesses. You know that stuff that I don't want to talk about. That's the stuff that I got to talk about. And um, so my you know my first concept uh, you know, I first heard Roy our, our founder talk about that at, at this conference in Chicago. Um, I was trying to get these meetings started in in. Uh, in Detroit, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd had enough, and I contacted Central Office. I talked to Roy. Uh, come to Chicago. So I went to Chicago in September of 86 and heard him talk about leading with your weaknesses and, and your top plate, you know, that concept of the plates and the plate dispenser at a cafeteria. So you take one up, and another one pops up. And, and he, he talked. So we went around the room that day, and there was probably – you know, 25 or 30 people in, in the room and talked about our top plate. And, uh, you know, people were, were being really vulnerable and talking about the stuff 
that was on their top plate. And uh, you know, today, for me, um, one of my best friend's mother is dying. You know, I, I practically, this is the house that I escaped to uh, from my house. Um, she's 89, and, and um, she was just diagnosed last week, and it, she may not make it through the weekend. And uh, um, so that's bringing up a lot of feelings. Um, and it helps me to share that kind of stuff, because if I don't share that kind of stuff, then ultimately it, it, you know, it comes out sideways, and generally in the form of lust. So, uh, but in that day, going around the room, um, you know, when I go to conferences, you know, I've been going to conferences for you know, close to 30 years, uh, be 30 years next year, and the first thing that I run into, and I heard a guy speak after I spoke this morning, and I'm thinking, gosh, he's got such a better, much better program than I do. And uh, um, I'm, I'm constantly doing that. And so uh, in that room, in that circle that day, you know, I just, I confess that. I said, you know, you know, when our founder spoke, I mean, it, it, I thought it was coming from God. And, you know, it was hard for me to see him as just another sex drunk. And he didn't want to be seen that way, trust me. He did not want to be seen as our founder. He wanted to be seen as another sexaholic. Um, and so uh, just confessing that, that, you know, I feel like my program is so inadequate and uh, uh, that I'm not doing half the things that everybody else is doing and, and I don't deserve this and all that kind of stuff. And that, um, those are the kind of things that I have to bring into the light. And uh, so I, I moved to, to Nashville and, and uh, you know, we, we start some meetings here in Franklin and uh, um, I still, you know, 1988, I moved here physically in 1988, started coming down here in 87, so I came to a number of meetings before I actually physically moved. I was still living in Detroit, but I knew I was moving here. And so I got to know some of the guys, and uh, um, I moved here in July of 88, and probably around August time, uh, we're working in construction trailers down in Spring Hill. They're building a plant down there. I'm working a construction trailer. So there isn't a lot of privacy. I mean, we just had desks. We had a few conference rooms. A couple of the guys had offices, but I didn't have one of those. And uh, one of the guys in the, in the fellowship in Nashville calls me during the day for a support call. And, I, man, I just froze. It was like, holy crap. And, you know... It, Took me a while to re- realize that people can't hear what he's telling me, and uh, uh, I, it, it freaked me out so much that I, I said, uh, "Can can you hold on a second, and can I call you back?" And so I walked into a conference. We had these conference rooms with phones in them, so I closed the door and I called him back, and I realized that I needed to share. He called me, but I was the one that needed to share, and. Uh, he and I have been talking to each other now for 27 years. He lives in, he lives in uh, Seattle, Washington now. <laughs> but I still talk to him several times each week, probably three, three or four times this past week. I learned, I learned that uh, um, you know, he knows me probably about as well as just about anybody. Um, 
And he, uh, th this is a guy who, um, he brings it all into the light. I mean, you know, um, you've heard that, heard the saying, I'm only as sick as my secrets. Um, so he, he's taught me over the years. Uh, we've, we, we've had to develop a code because, you know, we both work in uh, corporate America. And uh, so we've learned how to talk and code to each other. And uh, uh, we've named, you know, for both of us, our, our, our biggest trigger is fear. Um, I'm very fear-based. All my character defects are pretty much centered around fear. Uh, the big ones for me, lust, obviously, anger. Judge, I have a judgmental spirit. I, I'm a people pleaser. I'm dishonest. I have a lot of pride. I gossip. Um, I, I, I feel like I'm not enough. I'm, I'm a bad parent. I'm a bad citizen. I'm a bad employee. You know, the, the, those are the tapes that go on in my head. I compare myself with others at work. I judge my value based on my job title. Um, so these are the things that I'm, I'm, I'm always aware of and dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. And, uh, but, you know, we can talk to each other. And, um, you know, one of the things, one of my biggest triggers, um, you know, it's, I call them ricochet thoughts. You know, I have one thought that leads to another thought that leads to another thought that leads to a picture that I saw or an acting out partner. It's just amazing. You know, I, I, we just, I just go down this trail, but, the, you know, if, if, if it's fear-based, generally it's going to end up with lust eventually. And so, you know, that was something that we, he and I had in common, and, and uh, we, first, we first called them ricochet thoughts, and then we called them ricochet rabbit, because there used to be a... Uh, uh, cartoon out called Ricochet Rabbit uh, back in the back in the '60s, and uh, and then it got down to Bing, Bing, Bing. You know that this thought goes to that thought because that's so I can pick. I, you know, half the time I'll pick up the phone and he'll go Bing, 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 and I I said, what was it? And he said, well, you know, this thought led to that thought. And I was back in 1978, and it, and you know, I still remember that stuff vividly. Um, so that was really helpful for me to recognize that other people have those kind of thoughts, too. Um, you know, I've got theories about how it is or why it is, but that's just the way it is in my brain. You know, anybody that could actually examine my brain for any period of time would, you know, I, I, maybe you guys can, you know, my, my brain's bouncing around constantly. And uh, many times it ends up with a, with a lust thought. And so... You know, sharing that kind of stuff, uh, picking up the phone, uh, sending him an email, sending him a text. You know, all I got to do is say "Bing, Bing," and you know, it, that's that's the way I can let go of it. Um, you know, my my sponsor talked about in situations where it was impossible to uh, to uh, uh, let something go was was just to, to to do that act, just to just open his hand and let it go. My sponsor wears a rubber band. You know, if he's having thoughts that keep coming back and coming back, and he'll ping himself. It doesn't hurt it, you know, just enough just to get his attention. So if, if there's something that I'm obsessing about, and typically it's something that's, that's triggered by fear, uh, if there's something I'm especially fearful about, um, or I'm thinking about obsessively, I, I slip on a rubber band. And 
half the time, all I got to do is look at it. And, and that's enough of a reminder. I don't have to, I don't have to snap it. I just got to look at it and say, you know, thank you, God. Um, yeah, I learned with my sponsor to, uh, that there's a time and place to be really explicit. Because there are some things that are, you know, I, I feel shame about. Gosh, how could I have a thought like that? Um, you know, some, something that I saw in a porno movie, um, whatever. Um, and so, you know, I, I typically don't do those in meetings uh, because, you know, we, that's one of our guidelines. We don't, you know, use explicit sexual descriptions or sexually abusive language. But there is a, you know, I found it, it really helps me to pick up the phone and call him when I have one of those thoughts. And just, or somebody else that I trust, and just say, I saw this, it triggered this thought, and I'm, I'm feeling shame about it. Um, you know, I just want to bring it into the light. And stuff that I do that way, you know, no matter how, you know, sometimes it may take me a day or two to make that phone call. You know, I'm not perfect about this. Uh, if, if I'm feeling especially shameful about it, particularly with my sponsor, which seems, that doesn't even seem rational, but, you know, my, our steps tell us we have a form of insanity. So um, I write that off to my insanity. You know, he is not going to bite my head off. He's still going to love me if I tell him that I had this thought. Um, I have a couple of attractive nieces, and uh, uh, they're in their 20s, so being around them can trigger thoughts. And... Uh, so that's something that I, you know, I have to, I have to cast out. So um, those are the kind of things that I try to bring to the light. I try to talk about the things that I don't like to talk about. Um, you know, I, I, I try to get, I've, I feel like I've done better at getting over of worrying about what you think about me and my program. Um, I know, I know when I say that uh, uh, I come, go to my Tuesday night meeting and said, you know, I noticed this woman on the elevator just you know a couple hours ago. Um, I have to cast that stuff out. Uh, one thing I can tell you after 30 years is it hasn't gone away, and I, I honestly believe it will never go away. Um, you know that. That survival mechanism, you know, that me wanting to connect visually, you know, I'm, I'm real, real visual. Um, I really identified with the, uh, the old Jurassic Park, uh, the first Jurassic Park movie where the Tyrannosaurus Rex detects movement. Well, that's me, you know. I'm driving down the road, you know, I see a, I see a door swing open. Is it a woman? You know, or I see a leg pop out of a car at a gas station. Man, I'm, I'm on it. You know, that's... That's what I did. And so, you know, talking about, you know, learning initially, you know, to do this kind of stuff when I see a jogger or whatever. Um, you know, I pray for women every day driving to work. You know, there are a lot of them on the way to work every day. And, I, you know, I'm tempted. I see bouncing hair. I mean, that's, that's movement, you know. <laughs> that sets off all. And it hasn't gone away. Uh, and I'm as powerless over it today as I was when I walked in the door. Uh, I have more tools. I have more tools. I can say the prayer. 
God may find, you know, find in you what I'm looking for in that, in that glance, in that look. Um, and it only takes a nanosecond. You know, you, you know, all, you know guys know that. I can, I can see somebody in an instant, and that's, that, that can be okay. But I can intentionally look at somebody in an instant, and that's not. And I know the difference. You, know, you guys know the difference. Um, you know, when, I, when I take that second look, that's, that's when I know, you know that's something I've got I to gotta cast out. I've got I've to tell you guys about it, tell you that I'm, I'm still powerless over lust, um, powerlessness has, you know, will always be a part of it, and thank God that it is, because otherwise I would get self-satisfied and think that I'm doing this, and I can do it. I can, you know, I can, I can not look at it out of willpower, and I can recognize when I do that, um, and sometimes I forget to turn it over, and I just do it. Um, but when I when I remember that, I have to go back and say thank you. I can't do it for any period of time. I know I can do it for a short period. You know, be, before I got into, uh, came to my first meeting, you know, it seemed like months, but probably the most time I was able to not masturbate was maybe a couple of weeks. And it, you know, that seemed like an eternity to me. And when I heard Vince say five months, that was mind-boggling because I had been doing it steadily for close to 25 years. Um, so, you know, now that I've, I've learned that I don't have to act out, even though I may have seen something, um, and I can use it, I can turn that negative into, into a positive, and there's a book out called Recovery Continues, and it's a bunch of Roy's essays uh, that he wrote in the early days. You know, back in the day, he would just, he would just send these things out. He would write an essay, and one of them is called The Joy Response. And that's the one that really spoke to me because I could take that, you know, I, I see an attractive woman walking down the sidewalk. You know, my first reaction is to want to take something from her. And, you know, Roy talked about, you know, using that as an excuse to connect with God and, and say a prayer for her or just say, Thank you, God, for reminding me that I'm a sexaholic and that that isn't going to help me. And, uh, you know, thy will not mind be done in my life and, and go on about my business. And I don't have to be burdened down with it for the rest of the day. So those are some of my, kind of, my thoughts. If you guys want to stand up, is it kind of warm in here? If you guys want to stand up and kind of move around a little bit, I'm fine with that. Does anybody... Want to share? Um, I've talked enough. So, um, yeah, I'm now getting from lust. Uh, what, uh, over that long period of sobriety, and I, I know it, uh, the disease doesn't go away, but I guess, uh, you know, the promises, the spiritual maturity, I've heard different people, it's like five years is different than one year, and 20 years is different than 10 years, and it's just kind of getting better. Yeah, I, you know, I, uh, I, I, I described my first five years as uh, uh, I felt like a raw nerve. 
Um, it was painful. Uh, part of it, you know, was just uh, was just the uh, um, I liked the companionship of my marriage. I was extremely dependent, and uh, you know, just being on my own. I had never been on. You know, I had a roommate right after college. When I moved to New York, I was single. <clears throat> But I was only on my own for about a year before I got married. And so now for the first, you know, for the second time in my life, I was all by myself. I was in a strange town where I, you know, all the friends that I had were as a couple. And uh, uh, that was really painful. Um, I'm glad you said that, though, too, because after I'd been, when I moved to Detroit, you know, I was still married uh, for another we uh, separated in 85, and, and we, we, in New York, you could do an uncontested divorce. So you basically divided the property, and then after a year, either party could file for a divorce. And so you know, I, was, I was in a very conservative denomination at the time, and, and I was beating her over the head with the Bible, saying we needed to stay married. And, and uh, she was Roman Catholic, so I was using that against her, too. You know, how, could, how dare could, you know, don't... You guys honor marriage, don't you? You know, I was very much playing the victim. And uh, about two years into sobriety, um, I tried to make a big play to get her back. And she tells me, we're still married. She's engaged to somebody else. And so that's going on, and, and then she starts calling me and asking me for advice because things aren't going as well as she planned. And they'd already bought a house together. And so we hadn't, you know, we had, we had sold our property, you know, we had, you know, we had divided everything. So we were all but legally divorced, but we weren't. We were still married. I was still wearing my wedding ring. And uh, so she called me, and she's asking me for advice. Well, I'm, you know, things aren't going so well. And, of course, I'm still thinking that I'm in love with her, still obsessed with her, actually. And uh, it just so happened, God works in mysterious ways. The place that I started the SA meeting was a place called CAPS. Didn't know what CAPS stood for at the time, but it turned out to be children of alcoholic parents. And uh, amongst other things, my dad was an alcoholic. And uh, they were feeding people into our program right and left. Yeah, after about three weeks of holding meetings in this facility, you know, we were averaging 12 to 15 people every, every meeting. I mean, I couldn't believe it. And uh, so here I am. I'm hearing all these people that have very similar backgrounds to mine. And... Uh, um, my ex is calling me for advice in her love life. We're still married, and it was making me crazy. And I had enough, I had enough sobriety at the time and enough awareness that I said, you know, if this keeps up, I'm going to lose my sobriety. And so I, I got into counseling to say, you know, you know the, the eureka moment for me was, uh, what is it about me that causes me to get into relationships with people like her? Because once I looked at it, all my relationships had always been the same. I was extremely dependent. After a while, they, people don't like to be dependent on that much. And they get pissed off at you, and they shove you away. 
but they would always come back because I was a really nice guy. Um, and I would always take them back, and then ultimately they would leave me. That, those were all, that, every one of my relationships was the same way. And so I saw that cycle, you know, what is it about me? And uh, that's when I started getting into the, the family dynamic and how that impacted my life. And um, that's what stirred up, that, that's what made it gut-wrenching, because, you know, coming to grips with, oh, this is the way I grew up, uh, we had this crazy family system. Uh, I didn't feel loved. I couldn't, you know. You know, they were nuts, and they were doing the best they could. And you know, I, I don't blame them for that. Uh, my dad was horribly abused by his parents, you know, physically, emotionally, and uh, so it took me a few years to working through that, and and that was pretty gut wrenching. And uh, I was I was telling somebody I was sharing somebody after the last talk that uh, get the sobriety first and it was really helpful for me to understand what, what was the root cause of all this stuff. You know, what was the family system that caused what, what role did I play in that? And uh, that was really helpful. You know, it was after that time that, you know, I'd been sober. We finally, she finally divorced me in, in 87 and uh, um, I had gone to a conference in, in Cleveland in 85, and there was a woman there who had two years of sobriety. So, you know, Vince had five months. This woman had two years. She was single. And uh, she said, you know, I've been single for, and sober for two years, and I, I'm still not sure I'm, I'm healthy enough to date. And so um, by, by the time, two, you know, the summer, uh, August of 87, I'd been sober uh, just about two years at that point. The divorce is final. I finally get the papers in the mail. I finally took off my wedding ring. And uh, I knew enough about me at that point in time because I'd been in therapy for about six months and done some group therapy. Man, I have no business being in a relationship. <laughs> no business whatsoever. And so when I flew, you know, when I moved down to Tennessee, um, I continued on with the therapy for another year or so. And uh, I didn't have my first date until, like, 1990. So I was going on five years sober. And, uh, and then dating was a, just a totally different experience. But because uh, now it's like, holy cow. Uh, you know, I'm not going after the sex. Uh, now I'm trying to meet people and understand values and likes and dislikes and totally different from the way it was before. And so that's kind of a simple answer there. But, yeah, every five years, you know, we, I got married two days after my 11th sobriety birthday. Uh, you know, tell, I had to tell my spouse uh, while we were dating about my addiction. The reason I've been a little bit standoffish physically, <laughs> um, you know, because I, I knew I'd had to have some really pretty firm physical boundaries because I had none, you know. Uh, it was how fast can we get to bed, you know, and, uh, um, you know, I was going to do it differently this time. I was, it, it was about marriage, and it was, you know, obviously there could be no sex before marriage, um, that kind of stuff. And, uh, and so I, I really took it slow physically uh, with her. And, and then, you know, once I told her, it made perfect sense. She goes, well, good. I thought it was about me. Now I understand why. And uh, 
So, and I, I, I married into a perfect family. It turns out her, several of her grandfathers, you know, the one grandfather and one great grandfather were sex addicts. Her, her, her father's a, a pastor, retired. Now he's still working. He's 83 and he's still working. But his mother's a pastor's wife. Uh, had a focus on healthy sexuality in, in a church environment. And uh, at, you know, I had just told Ann about my uh, addiction. He'd given her the pamphlet. Uh, kept it real simple with her. I didn't, I didn't tell her my story. I said, you know, if you've got questions, the only question she ever asked me was, was I a pedophile? She said, this is important to me. I need to know. Because um, I gave her the book that uh, was on uh, Phil Donahue, and he talks about various stages of sexual addiction and, and pedophilia is out on, on one extreme kind of thing. And... Uh, um, so anyway, she had, Anna had just read, read that book, and her mother calls her and says, I've just read this book that describes you know, my father-in-law and my, and my grandfather. And she said, oh, yeah, what's the name of the book? And she told her, and she said, yeah, I just read that book too. She goes, why did you read it? Well, one of my friends is, you know, is in, uh, in recovery and told me about it. That, that is our family. You know? So I married into a family. Uh, her mother knows my story. You know, I, uh, I told them about it. Um, she, when she, you know, she doesn't do them any longer, but she, you know, did a lot of youth group counseling, and uh, so she always has one of our pamphlets back there. If you have a problem with issue with pornography or whatever, here's a here's a place that can give you some help. So I married it into a great family. So anybody else got anything? We got what time are we supposed to go to here? Oh gosh, we got plenty of time. Who would like to share? Hey, my name's Drew. I'm six calls. Hey, Drew. And uh, <laughs> the reason I picked this one is because it's one of the hardest things to do is to is to speak, you know, out of what's what's going on up here. Sometimes, you know, I think a lot of us live inside our head. At least I did. Thirty years or so. So, uh, I just think there's sometimes just to hear the actual speaking out of your mouth, the depths of where you've been, kind of makes you, you know, look on it and go, God, I'm really crap, crazy son of a bitch. You know? <laughs> so, so I think that's. It, but it, it's weird because you know we're brought up. At least I did. You know. In, my dad and grandfather, and, you know, it's the it's World War II generation, and after that, it's, it's work hard, it's figure it out, it's pull yourself up, it's fix it, it's, you know, rely on yourself, it's all this stuff that, you know, then you, you run into this thing, this thing that, that takes hold of your life, and, it, and you don't have a control, and it's hard to, you know, we have friends growing up, but our friends aren't people you can be real vulnerable with, yeah. it's friends that's Surface. It's friends to go, you know, fishing with and talk about the ball game or whatever. And, and uh, I think that's the the true power of these rooms. And I'm only, I'm only 431 days today, mm. <laughs> so and it's only one day at a time that you mm. can do it. Mm. And uh, 
one thing, and they, they figured out, the guys who wrote that blue book there, they figured it out. It's, it's, it's one drunk helping another. Yeah. And when, you, when you're around people that you don't feel like such a freak around, and, and you can develop those relationships to, uh, to be able to pick up a phone, and it's still hard for me. I mean, I might, I might call people three or four times a week, but you know, my sponsor told me to call him every day, and I still don't do it. Yeah. You know, half the time when I do call him, I just give voicemail, leave a message. You know, but it's the it's the willingness to do that, and it's, and to be able to just speak out amongst people who understand. Uh, a lot of a lot of power in that. So thanks for sharing. Yeah. I, you know, I um, thank you. Um, I, I my definition of the program is uh, you know working the steps with a sponsor in the, fel- in the fellowship of sobriety. And so I, I gotta do all three. I gotta have a sponsor. I gotta keep working the steps. And I gotta do it with you guys. Uh, because my tendency is to isolate. My tendency, you know, you know, be the first car in the parking lot, you know, work, be the hardest worker, you know, you can figure it out, that, that kind of stuff. Um, and nobody, nobody, you know, could think the thoughts that I do. And those are the, those are the ones that I, I have to share with my sponsor. Um, you know, while, while you were talking, you know, this, uh, this woman who's dying, um, you know, I, their oldest son had, he was the first one that showed me a penthouse and uh, kept his collection in the house so that, uh, because he was, he, you know, he was in college, and uh, so he had some some level of independence. I don't think his mom approved of it, but that that's what he did. And you know, when I when I let the dog out when they were on vacation or whatever, man, I'm in there. I'd spend hours in that house looking at all those magazines. You know, I loved that. You know, I wanted to be isolated. Um, you know, I wanted to have time to myself. I I couldn't wait for my parents to leave the house because as my my, you know, my addiction progressed just like my dad's. You know, when, I, when I first looked in my dad's drawer, he had a Playboy. And then ultimately, he had hardcore pornography. Over the next probably 10 years, it went from Playboy to hardcore pornography. And so that's the first time I saw it was out of my dad's dresser drawer. I actually got caught. You know, I, I was in the bathroom with his stash when they came home unexpectedly, and I thought I was going to die. I had to stash it. I had to wait until they were both in the living room so I could sneak it from the bathroom back into his dresser drawer. Uh, you talk about living on the edge. Holy cow. Man, that's, you know, that's stress. That is real stress. And, uh, yeah, when my, when I, in the first years of marriage, you know, my, my, when my wife was in grad school, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking at her catalogs. You know, I'd gotten rid of HBO, but then I found out that you could turn on HBO and occasionally you had squiggly lines, but occasionally you get a, a clear picture. And just the sound, just the sound of an R-rated movie was enough to, you know, oh, my gosh. You know, uh, masturbating at the kitchen table. My wife's up there doing her hair, and I'm watching this workout show that showed all these, you know, scantily clad women, you know, and masturbating at the breakfast table, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, I really come by all this really honestly. Um, you know, it, it's, to me, it's, an, it's a miracle. It is an absolute miracle that uh, 
I don't ha have to do that anymore. But I think about it. You know, I don't think about masturbating, uh, but I do think about lusting. You know, that's, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm still visually triggered by the images. So, I, you know, I don't, I had to learn that, you know, I subscribed to Time Magazine. Where did I go the first, when I first got Time Magazine? I'd go to the movie section. Are they going to, you know, the entertainment section? Are they going to have some pictures? Or the people section? You know, who are they going to have a photograph of? That kind of stuff. So I had to learn, you know, it, you know I, th I think it's great that our awareness level of how lust has permeated our lives comes on us pretty gradually. Because, you know, if it, if, if it hits you all at once, you just, it, holy shit, how can, I, how, how can I ever overcome this? But, you know, uh, you know, I heard somebody early in recovery call, you know, describe peeling the onion. You know, we just keep peeling back the layers. You know, and initially, you know, I spent my first month in recovery going to the beach every weekend. I was single. You know, my, my, I didn't know where my wife even lived at the time. But we were up on Lake Ontario. Fortunately, in Rochester, New York, the beach season ends pretty much at Labor Day. You know, it doesn't go, doesn't go past that. And, uh, but I spent three consecutive Saturdays at the beach drinking in all this stuff and wondering why I was being tempted to, you know, to masturbate. And I didn't, it, oh, I can't, for a while, I probably shouldn't go to the beach, you know. And then in recovery, um, I ended up. Uh, developing a friendship with one of my ex-therapists, and you know, we, we, we discovered we had a common love of sailing. And uh, so after I was finished with therapy with him, he, we became friends, and we owned a sailboat together, and we'd take it sailing to these really nice places. And I was able to do it then. You know, I can still picture one woman who really wanted to take a sailboat ride, and I really wanted to, but I knew I couldn't, and uh, thank goodness he was there. Um, but... Um, I was able to go to places like that. And, I, and then I could learn, like, you know, if you go after season, then there's not as many people on the beach. And so, you know, I was able to, but initially, I didn't go to, but up until that time, I took all my vacations at the beach. That's where I wanted to be. So, um, you know, it was just a, those gradual awarenesses of, hey, you know, this is where I lust. You know, I need to, and it was, fortunately, it was, I don't, you know, that concept of one day at a time. I don't have to do it forever. Just for today, it's just not good for me. And, uh, you know, at the time that we separated, I was in a denomination that did not believe in remarriage. And so I was looking, and I was 34 years old. I'm thinking, this could be a long time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, not being sexual. And, uh, but, you know, once I understood the concept of one day at a time, I can do it today. I'm not in a relationship today, or I'm still married. Um, we're not together. I'm not going to have sex today. I can do that. I can do this today. It doesn't have to be for the rest of my life. And then over time, after our divorce, um, you know, my attitudes about that changed, but it, it took a while, and uh, God was good. So thank you, guys.